July 25, 2017, Chalkidiki Peninsula, Greece. Alexandra Vinik is at the beach on summer vacation with her family. She's in the water with her two children, swimming, when she turns to look towards the shoreline. Some 20 people took part in the arrest wearing shorts, tops and sunglasses, Alexandra told Russia Today, the media arm of Russia's state propaganda. I didn't understand who they were and what that was about. In a minute, I saw my husband handcuffed, sitting on a sunbed. He didn't resist. It was a complete shock for him. Alexandra and her children would be held at the beach for the following eight hours without food and her phone and hotel room key confiscated as they waited under the watchful eye of three officers in plainclothes. Later in that evening, Alexandra contacted the Russian consul in Greece. Her husband was brought back to her briefly so that she could say goodbye. There's no way for us to know whether, in those moments, Alexandra Vinik was aware or not that her husband was being taken into custody in relation to a financial crime committed three and a half years earlier, halfway across the world. So what does a Russian man vacationing in Greece in 2017 have to do with the hacking of a cryptocurrency company in Tokyo in 2014? Hi, I'm Ran Levy. Welcome to Malicious Life in collaboration with Cyberism. With protests mounting outside his home and offices and thousands of customers missing millions of dollars, Mark Pellis in March of 2014 placed himself under a voluntary house arrest. Then, when he finally came out, he had a surprise. 200,000 Bitcoin. Apparently, while relegated to his Tokyo penthouse, Mark decided to investigate his company's hacking. He went back into the Mount Gox databases and, having searched through all their now emptied wallet, happened upon 200,000 Bitcoin just sitting stored away in an old format wallet. Somehow, as a result of severe lack of oversight in accounting, 200,000 Bitcoin were inexplicably left in a wallet the company no longer actively maintained. The file had been archived, but it remained in the cloud all those years. It's as if Mt. Gox got robbed, then Mark checked under the company's living room sofa and found millions of dollars nobody previously took note of. Maybe they all thought that big lump under the couch cushion was just part of its design. The discovery of 200,000 Bitcoin, a full quarter of the money previously thought to have been lost forever to hackers, might seem like the type of thing that would turn public opinion for the better. But the reaction to Mark's announcement was mixed, to say the least. If you believed Mark's story of how he came upon the money, this was a silver lining to an otherwise bad story. If you believed Mark was the hacker himself, this unbelievable story about accidentally coming upon a missing 200,000 coin smelled fishy, like some sort of trick to throw us off his scent. Mark insisted to journalists that he wanted no part of the 200,000 Bitcoin he found, but if that were ever to have gained him any goodwill, his timing was marred by another unexpected development. 
a development which requires some background in Japanese bankruptcy law. More on that in a bit. In addition to government authorities in the US, Japan and elsewhere, many members of the Bitcoin community joined the effort to investigate and hopefully recover Mt. Gox's lost money. The first breakthrough came in the late spring 2014, when a detailed technical document was posted to the web by a Tokyo-based software engineer. The document was a culmination of a long-standing inquiry within the Mt. Gox community about suspicious activity by Mt. Gox in the blockchain. The theory was first publicly introduced by a Reddit user named Palehorse, who noticed something patently wrong with the site's activity. They wrote, and I quote, At approximately 1 a.m. EST on January 7, 2014, the Gox trading API went offline for everyone in the world except Willy, the infamous buybot suspected of belonging to Mount Gox itself. During the next 90 minutes, Willy continued to buy his usual 10 to 19 bitcoins every 6 to 20 minutes while nobody else in the world could trade. End quote. Willy, the bot who was first given its name in this post by Pale Horse, was being discussed by traders as far back as December 2013. It appears that throughout the month of December 2013 and January 2014, between 10 and 20 Bitcoin were being bought consistently every 5 to 10 minutes. The red flag wasn't the amount of Bitcoin being traded, of course. It was the non-stop, unfailing consistency of the pattern and the fact that it continued even as Mt. Gox's service shut down to the public. This was a bot. But whose bot was it? Was it Mt. Gox itself? When internal data from Mt. Gox leaked following their insolvency, it offered the conspiracy theorists hard information to draw from. Essentially, there was a leaked data set of Mt. Gox trades uh, that was leaked on Reddit. This is Kai Chang. When Mt. Gox user data leaked, he worked with a partner, Eric Rodenbeck, to produce graphical representations that could suss out some of the patterns in the data. Nate Nelson, our producer, spoke with them. And we sort of sat on it for a couple weeks, and at some point, there was just a lot of media coverage around this uh, incident. It sort of coincided with a crash in Bitcoin's price, um, which uh, had sort of a lot of eyes drawn to these sort of negative events. And we decided we would sort of look into this data set a little more. And we noticed it just contained all of this sort of private information that uh, really I think Bitcoiners were not expecting to ever be, be leaked. Every single trade on Mt. Gox. If you were to look at Kai's graphs, they might appear rather innocuous. That is except for one. Um, and then this glitch in the system is just a strange user. We, we're not sure exactly what this is, and we didn't investigate it further, but it has many buys at very strange prices that don't correspond at all to the, to the market price of Bitcoin. Kai's team named this user the quote-unquote glitch in the system because of how odd it was. Picture hundreds of graphs with dots that generally take the shape of curves and sloped lines, sort of like stocks. Then there's the glitch, whose lines go straight up and down, like a barcode. Yeah, so in our graph, uh, 
um, we've plotted on a log scale uh, from 2011 to the end of 2013, the price of Bitcoin trades. And so you see these sort of lines uh, peaking up and falling down and peaking up and falling down, um, corresponding to sort of the boom bust cycle of Bitcoin as people are buying and selling Bitcoin. Uh, this particular user from February 2013 to September 2013, it has a couple trades that follow that pattern, but for the most part, there are these vertical stripes of just buying Bitcoin at all various prices from 100 to 100,000 yen could be within minutes of each other buying Bitcoin for prices that are, you know, thousands of times different. So it doesn't seem to make any sense. And if you look at a couple of the other users in uh, these visualizations, you'll see that they are actually selling Bitcoin um, and they also have some of these stripes. It's not ex usually their primary activity, but somehow their account sold Bitcoin to this particular user at very strange prices. And it shows up in these visualizations as these stripes of dots. And it's just weird, like no, no rational person or market would ever behave in this way. Right, like you would, you're buying. You're, what you're doing when you're buying and selling is to try and, you know, you're trying to buy low and sell high. And suddenly, there's one of these accounts just decides to, to both buy and sell at low and high, in 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 ways that are just entirely outside of the price of what the currency is going for. It, it was as if you had some houses and you were going around and someone says, "Oh, I'll pay you five hundred thousand for dollars for a house," and you say, "That sounds good. I'll sell you a house." And then someone else says, "Oh, I'll pay you five dollars for this other house." And you say, that sounds good, I'll sell you a house. Kai and Eric themselves weren't interested in following up the study. But then, on May 25, 2014, came the Willie Report. In it, its author lays out the trail of breadcrumbs, illuminating what exactly this glitch in the system might have been. The Willie Report solved one key issue, pinning down Willie's account. You see, many people already knew about Willie, but nobody could pin him, it, down. It turned out Willie wasn't associated with a single account at all. The report's author tracked Willie's buying pattern in the final days of November, and instead of finding an account demonstrating suspicious activity, it found many. All of the user IDs which displayed the suspicious buying pattern also shared strange characteristics. The value for state and country associated with these accounts, in other words, where they perpetrated to be trading from, was simply two question marks. Verified Mt. Gox accounts have legitimate values associated with these fields associated with a real-world location of the user. Even suspicious or otherwise unverified exchange participants generally displayed either two exclamation points or nothing at all in those fields, but never question marks. When the Willie Report author accumulated all accounts with question marks for state-country fields, they noticed a remarkable pattern. First, each of these user IDs would complete trades of a very specific dollar amount, say $10,000. Never 10,001 or 10,234. Next, the IDs would deactivate, but then another user ID with the same buying pattern would always pop up within the following few hours. It seems Willie's creator was clever, anticipating that a single user ID purchasing the same amount of coin over the same time intervals might alert community members. 
the bot would instead kill and birth new accounts regularly and buy varying amounts of coin so that it would appear to be the product of many community members instead of one. This pattern was discovered going back to September 27th of 2013. The most common amount of money purchased by Willie was two and a half million dollars. It never once sold any Bitcoin. By the end of November, Willie had purchased a whole $112 million worth of cryptocurrency. The effect was that the entire market skyrocketed. In late October 2013, Bitcoin was trading for around $200 a pop. After a month, one Bitcoin cost over $1,000. Investors speculated at the time that the price jump could have been the result of an influx of wealthy Chinese investors or the FBI bust of an online black market for drugs called Silk Road, which used Bitcoin as its currency. Nope. It was Willy all along. Willie's identity wasn't clear to this point, but it soon would be, as the trail of breadcrumbs turns out to have led back far beyond late 2013. Among the other strange qualities of the Willie user IDs, the report's author noted that the first Willie account had an inordinately high ID number. All Mt. Gox user IDs are numbered, and to that point in the exchange history, those numbers went up to about 650,000. The first Willie ID was 807884, which seemed rather artificial. It's like if you're at a deli counter and you get a number for your place in line, and everyone else's numbers are ordered sequentially, 2, 3, 4, etc., but your ticket says 458. Upon closer inspection, it turned out there was one other outlier account with the ID number 698630. User 698630 lived for about eight months, then became deactivated on September 27th, just seven hours before Willie was born. This could be no accident. The author of the Willie Report named this parent bot Marcus. Marcus had state country fields indicating it was located in Tokyo, Japan. Its trading activity was much stranger than Willie's, though. It never paid fees on transaction and would purchase large sums of Bitcoin at seemingly random price points. Sometimes Marcus bought coin at prices so low, you'd wonder who in the world would have been willing to sell to it at that rate. Other times, Marcus bought at unbelievably high prices, which brought into question why anybody would pay such unnecessary amounts for what could otherwise be bought with much less. The randomness with which Marcus paid for Bitcoin ultimately indicated something much more sinister. It turned out these values weren't just random. They were meaningless. Marcus was trading for Bitcoin, but never paying for any of it. In total, Marcus bought about 300,000 Bitcoin over its lifespan. Willie, afterwards, would purchase around 350,000 Bitcoin. That means between the two bots, around 650 Bitcoin were purchased. 650,000 like 850,000 bitcoins lost from Mt. Gox in February 2014, 
minus 200,000 recovered by Mark Kerpelis. Evidence or coincidence? The amount of money managed by Marcus and Willie seems unusually parallel to the amount of Bitcoin missing from Mt. Gox. But remember too, Willie continued to operate when Mt. Gox was shut down and Marcus operated out of Tokyo, Japan, the location of the company's headquarters. So was this the hacker? Was it Mt. Gox? Or was it evidence that the hacker was Mt. Gox? Kim Nilsson is the Swedish computer scientist and former Mt. Gox investor whose work helped uncover the bevy of hacks Mt. Gox faced long before 2014. Where the Willie Report first published the patterns of Willie's automatic purchasing activity, Kim was able to analyze one further aspect of its behavior, when it shifted from automatic to manual control. It turns out Willie wasn't entirely automatic. Its behavior changed at certain identifiable points over time, whether it was the amount of coin purchased or the amount of time between order placed or specific transactions which seemed above and beyond the typical buying patterns of the machine. Whenever the data diverged from the norm, it was evidence to human intervention. The anomalous data Nielsen tallied up revealed a few key patterns. There were no manual actions taken upon Willie during what were typical sleeping hours in Japan or during weekends. Most of the actions were taken during typical workday hours in Japan, though many were also enacted after typical work hours. There was a notable gap in manual actions during the Christmas holiday break. In all, it appeared somebody in Japan was operating Willie as part of their work duties. There was one more notable trend in Nielsen's findings. Right as February 2014 approached, the Willy bot suddenly reversed course. Where it only bought, never sold Bitcoin in its lifespan beforehand, now it began exclusively selling off significant amounts of coin. February 2014, you'll recall, is when Mt. Gox became aware that they were insolvent. In part one of this double episode, I told you about some of the many hacks that hit Mt. Gox during the 2011 calendar year. But I left out a few of them. That's because they occurred even before Mark Karpelis had even taken over the company. On March 1st, after Mark signed on to take over the company, but just before it was literally handed over, but just before it was literally handed over, a hacker breached the company's servers and stole the wallet.dat file representing an entire hot wallet. A hot wallet, for context, is an online storage location for coin. Having hacked the wallet, 80,000 Bitcoin was stolen from Mt. Gox and put into a single user account. Interestingly enough, the hacker never actually used their stolen money. It's hard to believe somebody would just up and forget about 80,000 bitcoins, but it all remained in their account, not ever converted, not ever withdrawn, but still locked away to those who wished it returned. 80,000 bitcoin may not have seemed all that dire to a flourishing 2013 Mt. Gox, but to a fledgling 2011 Mt. Gox, it was a veritable crisis. 
In a very real sense, the Mt. Gox company was insolvent even before its sale to Mark Herpelis, whether Jed knew it or not. Mark realized only after the fact that he'd bought a broken product, and now he needed a solution. It was Jed who first suggested buying up coin using a software bot to try and make up the difference over time. And so, Mark created a bot that would trade Bitcoin to such an extent that it could manipulate the entire market with the effect of making money for its owner. Marcus and Willie, it turns out, were no hackers at all. They were Mt. Gox projects put into place to try and make up for losses occurred even before Mark took over the company. So Mt. Gox was trading its own liabilities on its own exchange. It's sort of like punching yourself in the eye to forget about your broken leg. Mark Herpelis would later state his excuse for having initiated illegal bot activity to influence his own currency exchange, claiming he only did it for the good of the company. Many didn't believe him, but the evidence would suggest this is not a lie. Some employees claimed the measure put in place to dig Mt. Gox out of its hole were working. But then the price of Bitcoin just kept rising and rising, those missing coins becoming more and more expensive to make up. Mark was chasing a finish line that kept moving further away. Willie might have succeeded had it been perfectly programmed to read and react to the Bitcoin market. But it wasn't able to do that, and the result of the effort left Mt. Gox even deeper in the hole. The bot caused a net loss of 22,800 Bitcoin, a total of $50 million. The final blow came when U.S. officials seized $5 million from their U.S. bank accounts. No longer could bots or any other security measures make up the gap. Malicious Life is sponsored by Cyberism, an end-to-end cybersecurity solution built to empower defenders. So how does Cyberism empower defenders? Here's John Breen, head of global IT security and cyber operations at FlowServe. FlowServe is a global corporation in about 60 countries, um, nine business languages, about 20,000 employees. We make pumps, valves, and seals. And then uh, we do nuclear contracts, military contracts. Our intellectual property is extremely valuable. My entire security team has, our lives would be very different right now if it wasn't for cyber reason. I would not be sitting here talking to you. I would be sitting back at the office, cranking through 15,000 machines to get them all restored or, or purchase new ones if we had to, depending on how bad it was. So cyber reason is watching the shop, watching the, the store while we're sleeping. And that's something that I would have to augment with staff without a platform as good as Cyber Reason. Before Cyber Reason was in our environment, we were playing a lot of whack-a-mole, so to speak, you know, trying to uh, run around and, and, and deal with things that we were understaffed, ill-equipped to handle, um, and this just really helped to fill um, the gap that we needed, not just with the managed service, but the actual solution itself is very uh, good at um, self-remediation, uh, sinkholing IPs and traffic that shouldn't be um, because it's an indicator of compromise, for example. And that's just one task that myself and my team wouldn't, don't have to do anymore. We had, in the past, many challenges around lateral movement of, of, of malops. And with Cyber Reason in place, that just doesn't 
exist anymore. And it's really, really good at protecting uh, from those types of threats, whether it's ransomware or any other type of mail-up, CNC, elevation, privilege elevation. Um, I, I think that uh, the visibility it gets us and the um, comprehensive understanding of what the threat is and how it's moving, as well as the ability to do queries and, and, and see kind of threat patterns, how, they're, how they might be evolving or how they might have come in, um, hooking into um, uh, threat exchanges for um, hashes that are constantly coming out, uh, indicators of compromise that are constantly coming out, all put in the back end of Cyber Reason um, without us having to load it. I mean, it's just fantastic. Yeah. We love Cyber Reason. As his paranoia grew and his company's future plummeted, Mark appeared unfazed to friends and colleagues. Quote, he was like a more stoic version of the Cheshire Cat, Mt. Gox's head accountant recalled to the Daily Beast. Quote, he was always smiling. He could probably tell you, oh, the entire office is on fire and we'd better leave before we burn to death, and it would be the same expression. End quote. To those who knew him, Mark was just strange like that. To the public, it must have been confusing and suspicious that a man being taken from his home in handcuffs would have looked so relaxed about it all. The 1st of August 2015 was when a 30-year-old Mark Karpelis was arrested by Japanese police on charges that he manipulated Mt. Gox to artificially add $1 million to his personal account and had stolen $166,000 from Mt. Gox user accounts for himself. While locked up, though, being pressed day and night about having stolen pocketed money from his own company, Mark never once admitted to the crimes for which he was being accused. Still, this was late 2015, and Mark Carpellis was being held in jail on charges related to much less than 1% of the total money lost in Mt. Gox's insolvency. During this time, former Mt. Gox employees were publicly disclosing to media outlets Mt. Gox's practice of dipping into customer accounts to cover for its financial losses, but none of those accusations made their way into Mark's legal case. The crimes being alleged against him really had very little to do with the Mt. Gox hack at all. And yet, for a public who sought justice against Bitcoin's public enemy number one, it was something. It wouldn't be until July of 2016, just about one year after his initial arrest, that Mark Arpelis exited a Japanese jail on bail. He lost 70 pounds while behind bars and deprived of quiche. Before jail, Mark looked like the kind of guy you'd expect near the finger food table at a party, in a t-shirt, commenting on the dip. The Mark who left jail was a new man, sharply dressed, hair cut, the kind of guy you'd find at a party, smooth-talking lady. The upgraded look was merely a thin veil, though, to his continued, obnoxious, never-ending legal, financial, personal journey. The lost Mt. Gox Bitcoin hadn't yet been recovered, even in part. His upcoming trial in Japanese courts were looming. That day came on July 11th of the following year. They were charging him on two fronts. The first, 
embezzlement and breach of trust related to any payments Mark made from the company to himself for personal gain. The second, manipulating of his personal account balance related to the activity of his Marcus bot. Notably left out of these charges were any accusations of crimes that had anything to do with anyone besides Mark, such as operation of the Willie bot, which, despite having similar effects to Marcus, did not specifically originate from Mark's individual account. Even more notably, the allegations made no mention whatsoever of Mt. Gox's 650 bitcoins hack or the potential crimes Mark had committed that allowed for or otherwise related to it. Mark, for his part, admitted to operating his bot. In fact, he didn't actually deny any aspect of the prosecution's factual claims. He merely attempted to reverse the narrative the Japanese prosecution were portraying of him. In his opening statement, Mark iterated the following, quote, I am innocent of all charges. What is being called fraudulent creation of private electronic records was in reality a business function called obligation exchange by which Mt. Gox Bitcoin and US dollars liabilities towards its customers could be exchanged at market value for the purposes of keeping Mt. Gox's debt portfolio reasonably balanced. As I inherited Mt. Gox from Jed McCaleb, I became aware of problems that made it necessary to manage its debt portfolio, lest it fall into bankruptcy and cause significant damage to customers. Any investigation will readily show that it was not for my or Mt. Gox's own benefit. Regarding this prosecution, I swear to God that I am innocent. Nevertheless, I would like to say something to everyone. Through the collapse of Mt. Gox, I have caused enormous trouble for many customers, and as the representative, I would like to offer my apologies from the bottom of my heart. End quote. As his trial was picking up, years after the bad news about his company first broke, Mark Arpelis was still receiving regular hate mail. This time, though, most of it was related not to the hack itself or his personal trial, but a different problem he had going against him. In the beginning of this episode, we talked about one of the strangest turning points in the Mt. Gox story, when Mark Herpelis, searching through his now-defunct company's emptied files, happened upon 200,000 Bitcoin previously unknown to him or anyone else. He figured this was great news. You'd have probably figured the same. But it wasn't to many. Those who suspected Mark of being his company's hacker suspected the move was merely a diversion to lead investigators off his trail. But what really triggered former Mt. Gox users was what 200,000 recovered Bitcoin meant by late to the ongoing case of whether they would ever be repaid. First, the obvious. 200,000 recovered Bitcoin meant that investors who lost money in Mt. Gox would receive money back they otherwise wouldn't have had no money been returned at all. The twist here has to do with Japanese bankruptcy law. According to stature, a Japanese company's liabilities are handled in bankruptcy proceedings according to the market value of such liabilities at the time the proceedings were first initiated. The idea is that creditors with money owed to them won't lose out if a company's holdings became devalued over the time it takes to complete a bankruptcy case. In Mt. Gox's case, the law had the exact opposite effect. 
in early 2014, one Bitcoin was worth under $500. When the bankruptcy proceedings hit their stride in mid-2017, Bitcoin had hit its all-time high price of over $17,000 per coin. Because Japanese law only concerned the market value of the lost coin, rather than the number of lost coins itself, Mt. Gox customers were subject to receiving their money back only at that near $500 rate. In practice, this meant they would be receiving just 12% of the money currently up for grabs. The rest of the 88%? Mt. Gox's lawyers had basis to argue it belonged to Tibane, Hong Kong, Mt. Gox's parent company, for which Mark Karpelis was the largest stakeholder. So, after everything, Mark Karpelis was set to come into a multi-million dollar windfall. Even though Mark had little influence over the matter, this characteristic of Japanese law had the effect of further demonizing him to the general public. In a way, it only led to more problems for him. Even if only that 200,000 Bitcoin made it back into the hands of investors, it's quite possible that the Mt. Gox story could have petered out from there. 200,000 Bitcoin represented less than one-third of the money missing from the Mt. Gox customer account, but by 2017, it was worth orders of magnitude more than 100% had been in 2014. A simple one-to-one -one return of coins may have been a sweet and sore compromise for all parties. Instead, due to the particulars of Japanese bankruptcy law, Mark had to spend many of his days after jail between the offices of his bankruptcy trustee and various teams of lawyers. All the while, he insisted in interviews with the media that he wanted no part of the money. Few people listened or believed him. Mark Karpelis may not have been on trial for malicious activity pertaining to the hacking of his company. However, in the public eye, among many, he very much was. That would change on July 25, 2017, with the arrest of a Russian man on vacation in a small beachside village in Greece. And he has Kim Nilsson to thank for it. The Russian is suspected to have been an operator of BTCE. BTCE, you may or may not remember, is a name we briefly mentioned in part one of this episode. It was one of the two Bitcoin exchanges that overcame Mt. Gox as that exchange's popularity waned during its dying months. BTCE wasn't a major exchange in that same way, though. Founded in July 2011, by February 2015, even after the collapse of Mt. Gox, it managed only 3% of all Bitcoin transactions worldwide. It's based out of Russia, and even before coming under scrutiny, had something of a reputation as the quote-unquote shady Bitcoin exchange. Considering that Mt. Gox, a company with no money, over half a dozen hacks in three years, and executive-sponsored manipulation of the market through bot activity was the gold standard of its time, the fact that BTCE was considered the shady one should say something about that company. Later investigations would bear out these truths. 
The BBC discovered their parent company, Always Efficient LLP, is a shell operation registered to a non-starter office space in East London under the name of a nightclub DJ from Moscow who claimed no knowledge of the company when questioned by reporters. A Justice Department press statement released two days after the arrest of Alexander Vinnick essentially summed it up in saying, quote, BTCE was heavily reliant on criminals, including by not requiring users to validate their identity, obscuring and anonymizing transactions and source of funds, and by lacking any anti-money laundering processes. The indictment alleges BTCE was operated to facilitate transactions for cybercriminals worldwide and received the criminal proceeds of numerous computer intrusions and hacking incidents, ransomware scams, identity theft schemes, corrupt public officials, and narcotics distribution rings. End quote. Not long after establishing himself as an effective investigator in the matter, U.S. authorities looking into the Mt. Gox hack enlisted the help of Kim Nielsen to track down the hacker and the lost money. For over two years, beginning in spring 2015, Nielsen's blog, Wyzak, didn't post a new single article on the case. It may have appeared that Kim had nothing else to report or lost interest in the story. Instead, he was remaining quiet so as not to disturb a slow-building investigation. By analyzing data from Mt. Gox and the publicly available Bitcoin ledger, Kim identified that the Mt. Gox hack began at 5.30 a.m. Japan time on September 22, 2011. The next breakthrough came as it was discovered that a money launderer working with the thief in fact sent some of that coin taken from Mt. Gox back through Mt. Gox itself. Remember, these were the early days when Mt. Gox was the de facto Bitcoin exchange and had very few competitors to the title. A plurality of the stolen coin, around 300,000 of it, moved through BTCE, a preferred choice of Bitcoin criminals. The rest of it was sent to the other major exchanges, not least Mt. Gox. So, in other words, it was as if this hacker broke into bank vault at Wells Fargo, gave the money to the launderer, and the launderer walked in through the front door of those same banks soon thereafter to deposit the cash into their own Wells Fargo account. All Bitcoin transactions make it onto its blockchain ledger, so it can be seen which accounts were receiving the stolen funds. And when Mt. Gox's internal data leaked, the same data used to incriminate the company for using bots, it revealed sensitive information which casually connected these suspicious accounts back to a single crypto investor, an avid participant in online forums who went by the name WME. WME, it appeared, was the launderer for the Mt. Gox hacker. Ironically, WME had already made a name for himself in the community for, among other suspicious activities such as promoting quote-unquote cheap coins, posting a long thread in a Bitcoin forum claiming to have been scammed out of $100,000. WME was not too forward-thinking when, in posting online, he'd use his real name, Alexander Vinnick. Kim Nielsen, for one, after tying the laundering Mt. Gox account to WME, suspected Alexander Vinnick to be a pseudonym. 
he would only find out once news broke of Vinnick's arrest that it was not. It probably made the job easier for U.S. law enforcement when they started looking for him. It's worth emphasizing that Vinnick's accounts were used to launder the money, not steal it. The coin did, however, travel directly from the private keys associated with the hacker to those under Vinnick's possession before making its way to BTCE and other locations, indicating a close relationship between him and the hacking entity. Who was this hacker? Investigators came upon only small hints. One inference we might draw is that with a hack of a company this massive, of so much money and such successful execution, it's reasonable to assume no single individual could have pulled off the feat. Also worth considering is how Vinnick has been tied with the highest echelons of the Russian government. FBI investigations uncovered evidence that suggested Vinnick may have helped launder Bitcoin for Fancy Bear. Russia's primary government-sponsored hacker collective responsible for hacking the 2016 U.S. elections. In other words, there's a good reason to think that the entity that hacked Mt. Gox was related and maybe operated by Russian intelligence. In context, then, there was a reason to be suspicious when the Russian government charged Vinnick with fraud. The charges appeared to be trumped up, a way to get him back on home soil rather than have him face 21 much more serious indictment coming from courts in the US. Russia even issued a veiled threat towards the Greeks after their court system initially approved America's extradition request. Until Vinnick is properly tied in a Western court, there's no way to tell whether any of this is pertinent to the Mt. Gox case or not. We've released this podcast episode on February 2019. To this day, none of the hacked 650,000 Mt. Gox Bitcoin have been recovered, nor its true hacker identified. The story of the found 200,000 Bitcoin would end with a petition organized by four major Mt. Gox creditors who lobbied that the bankruptcy proceedings be nullified and replaced instead by civil rehabilitation proceedings. Civil rehabilitation, the logic went, is a less strictly regulated process, leaving flexibility for the courts to divvy up the remaining coin more fairly among the company's customers rather than the company itself. On June 22nd of 2018, Tokyo's district court sided with the creditors and for the first time in its nation's history pulled a corporation out of bankruptcy in order to allow those who lost their money to file claim for just reimbursement. 24,750 of those claims would end up being filed, including one from Colin Burgess. They're all slated to be met later this year. Despite claiming that Alexander Vinnick was neither an administrator nor employee of the company, BTCE's data center was raided by FBI agents at 11 a.m. on the day of Vinnick's arrest. Their servers were seized, including 38% of customer funds. 
the website went down, and three days later, the FBI seized its web domain. Vinnick himself was held by authorities in Greece for over a year following his arrest. In that time, he avoided a hit placed on his head, placed by an unknown Russian entity uncovered by the Greek police in May of 2018. On September 14th of last year, in response to heavy coercion from the Russian government, the Greeks conceded and sent Vinnick back home. He'll likely never have to answer to his highest crimes. Jad McCaleb, for his part, now acts as CEO of Stellar, a decentralized financial services company. Kim Nielsen's company, WizSec, dissolved before he was able to complete his full Mt. Gox investigation. With Vinnick in Russian hands and Japanese civil rehabilitations underway, it may be that the investigations into Mt. Gox have run their course. Finally, Mark Karpelis pled not guilty to the charges leveled against him in his trial. His case remains ongoing to this day. Despite his infamous celebrity and the continued threat of more Japanese jail time, he managed to score himself a new gig as CDO of London Trust Media, a VPN company. And with that, we've come to the conclusion of the Mount Gox story. And yet, we're left with one unanswered question. Was Mark Herpelis Mount Gox's greatest villain or its most tragic victim? That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. As I mentioned last time, our first listener's survey is live on the site at malicious.life with a special bonus episode for those who take it. Also, if you'd like to be a sponsor of our show, you can reach out to us via the Contact Us form in the website or via email at eliad at malicious.life. That's E-L-I-A-D, eliad at malicious.life. As always, you can find me on Twitter at at Ranlevy, that's at R-A-N-L-E-V-I, and follow at Malicious Life for updates on new episodes. Malicious Life was produced by PI Media in collaboration with Cyberism. Learn more at cyberism.com. Bye-bye. <laughs>